I operate. I, I know I'm supposed to be close to people. I know it's healthy to be close to people. Yet at the same time, I don't know if I should be close to people. And if I am close to people, do I do it with a mask or not a mask? How many, have, have any of you accidentally walked into a place without a mask just to find everyone staring at you oddly and remind you, oops, I don't have a mask? Twice I made it all the way up to the door of an establishment just to see the big sign saying, if you don't have a mask, don't even think about coming in. That's happened twice, not the, oh, yeah, God, Luke, and I have to walk all the way back to the truck, get a mask, and come all the way back in. Reentry anxiety. And yet, as wars come and go, as depressions and recessions and viruses come and go, as empires rise and fall, and as creation itself creaks and groans, we have a timeless word that speaks timely. We have a timeless word that's speaking timely to you and to me and to our hearts and to our minds, and this is not a small thing. I mean, the gospel of God, the good news of God for you and for me through the person of Jesus Christ. The good news is effective to protect and guard an anxious heart, an anxious mind. The gospel says a lot of things to you and me, but one of the things that the gospel does say is stress not. Stress not. It handles our anxiety. We're going to look at this passage in particular and how he addresses us. So this is in Philippians 4. We're going to look at verse 4. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. Very, 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 very helpful. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, some of your Bibles, by the way, say gentleness there. They're both really good words there. Neither one of them is wrong. Gentleness might be a hair more accurate, but you can put both words in there. Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is what we're all after. This is what we're all after. A peace that bends logic, that supersedes what we would understand. Our hearts and our minds, they need this protection too. They need to be guarded like this, don't they? I mean, our hearts can get so bitter when they're anxious. They can get so angry, depressive, heavy. Our minds need this protection because it can get so cluttered, so busy. Peace is what we're after. This place of no disturbance. This place of no harassment, no trouble. And losing this peace of God, it's not a small thing. In fact, it's a binary relationship when you think about it. A peace of God and anxiety. If you have one, you don't have the other, right? Anxiety is the loss of the peace of God, if you wanted to define it that way. And then also to lose anxiety is to gain the peace of God. But you can't have anxiety and the peace of God at the same time. That's not going to happen. You can't worry big if your God is big. We're going to find this as we move through this passage. But the anxious person does not just lose the peace of God, they lose the reasonableness too, their gentle nature. That's why Paul is saying, let it be known to all, not just Christians, not just let your gentle nature be known to Christians, but let your gentle nature and your reasonableness be known to all. Let's remember, he's writing this under watchful guard as he is unjustly imprisoned. That is 
who he is being gentle before. Have you ever been around people that whenever they're squeezed by the vice of life, the only thing that kind of leaks out of them is this heavy sense of gentle reasonableness? It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's enough to stop us in our tracks and take notice. They would resent Paul as they clocked in to watch him, and he would exude joy in return. They would clock in as guards and as officials to watch him, and they'd be stressed out about their lives. He has everything to lose. He's not stressed out at all. As I said in the earlier sermons, he would be the one in chains, but they would be the one in prison. I'll tell you, when I get anxious, I lose my gentleness. I have sharp edges. I can't be playful. I'm unable to be playful or even smile. I don't know if you've done a lot of reading in survival situations. I love survival books, how to survive, how to survive hard things, things like that. One of the things that they'll tell you, survival experts, for the most part, agree that whenever somebody in an emergency situation or a troubled situation loses their sense of playfulness, everything starts to come undone at that point. That playfulness in a person in an extreme circumstance is more valuable, more valuable than a head full of survival knowledge. Which is, by the way, interestingly enough, why you find when planes crash in a wilderness area or a bus or something tragic where multi-generational victims are out there, you will see little kids and teenagers come walking out of the bush with no scratches or harm, but the adults don't make it. They've lost their sense of playfulness, that gentle heart. And when we overcome with anxiety, we lose it. Can't laugh either. Can't dream. Can't take a break. Can't think straight. And when we look at people and we look at things, they are either the answer to all of our problems or they are now a part of the problem. But we become very hyper-pragmatic and cold and dull. So we lose the peace of God, we also lose our gentleness. An anxious person also loses what I'm going to call today a depth perception of God. That's odd language, I know. In other words, God is no longer at hand, as Paul says in our passage today. He's not at hand anymore. He's not imminent. Imminent just means that he can break upon the scene at any moment, that he can come suddenly, he can come unexpectedly, nothing can slow him down, nothing can stay his hand. You see, when God appears, it's not as if he's coming from miles away and we can see him coming. That's the way we imagine it in our heads, right? We imagine that we will always see God coming or signs of God coming. Um, But until we see those signs or we see him in the middle of our mess, we just imagine him far off because that's how we handle each other. I mean, I've got an app just like some of you where I could track all my family. I know where they're at in the city, right? I, I know how fast they're driving. I know if they're at a red light or not. I have that app, right? So I could see my wife coming. So I know she's not at hand. She's downtown. But with God, we always kind of put that same way of looking at distance on him and we say he can't be at hand. This, by the way, is why whenever hurricanes come or wars come or tornadoes or something like that, all the crazies get on Facebook and talk about how God is at hand. Here it is. The world's coming. The world's coming to an end. God must be at hand. As if he wasn't already, as if he was miles off or something. He's always at hand. He's always right there. He's always not just standing at the door, but he's standing at the door with his hand on a doorknob as he is peeking in. He's imminent. He's imminent. I mean, this is interesting. Have you ever noticed that the disciples in the original church were resolved that God was just going to come back and stop it all at any moment, right? Like, hey, it might not happen Tuesday. 
It might happen Wednesday, but it's got to be this week. All right, maybe this month, but it's happening. They, they always had this, this vibe that they were literally in the very literal last days. We don't always fault them for that, though. When we read it, first pen, stay where you're at, First Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand, Peter says. This is Peter, not me. At hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. James, different author, says this in chapter 5. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. At hand. We read these passages and we think, poor guys. They didn't know. Here it is, it's 2020. If they only knew what we knew, God still hasn't come back. And then we start to wonder that maybe in another 200 years, 300 years, 3,000 years, people will be looking back on us and thinking the same thing. God can't possibly be at hand. This is what Peter says to us in 2 Peter 3. He says, people will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But then he Then he pivots in verse 8 and he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. If the incarnation of God into creation in the person of Jesus teaches us anything, it's that when God visits us, it's out of timelessness. He's coming out of timelessness. And it's a sudden, unexpected coming. Nobody was expecting the incarnation when it happened. It came without resistance. There is no delay, not a small delay. There is zero delay between God's intent and will and God's action because nothing slows him down. Nothing slows him down. So every every second, every second, maybe millisecond is pregnant with the possibility of God appearing even now, even today, even in this sermon, even in this second. Every second. There is no delay between his will and his action. Now, so when the disciples felt like God could come at any moment, they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. The Bible's full of moments where God suddenly arrives out of nowhere, unexpected. He just shows up. His glory shows up and everyone freaks out and hits the dirt, right? Or, 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 or the Lord showed up and routed an enemy and a battle totally changed. God is always doing this. He's never far off. Now, it's split among scholars, whether Paul is speaking right now about God stepping into our lives and renewing and redeeming all of creation, or, and that's what it means by him being at hand, or if he's just at hand for us in our daily, everyday, normal, boringly predictable lives. I think it's both. (laughs) Not to make everybody happy. I just think it's both because this is the way God operates. This is the way he's always operated. He's never been far off. He's never been resisted. His appearances are always sudden. Whether he's coming in the end, or he's coming today, or he's coming finally, or he's coming for a moment, this is the way he operates. And this is important. And this is why I think it's important in this passage. When we believe that God is at hand, it takes the specter and the ghost of tomorrow's anxieties, and it pushes it down. It drains it. But if you believe that God is not at hand, and he is miles off, well, then you better save yourself. He's not even close. You better take care of number one. You see, that's what anxiety ultimately is. It's the suspicion of trouble around the corner that you were ill-equipped to handle today. It's borrowing a problem that doesn't even exist yet. And by borrowing tomorrow's problem, you are earning today's anxiety. 
Anxiety is ultimately the lie that God is not going to save you because he is miles off. He's not at hand. He's far gone. So you have to save yourself. And good luck, because you got a little bit of grit and a three-pound broken brain. And But maybe, maybe, if you have enough connections and you woke up, you got a good night's sleep, or you went to a holiday in that night, and you woke up a genius the next day, maybe you could figure out how to fix your problems. But you better figure it out because God's not close. This is the voice of anxiety. Anxiety ultimately is your and mine, our feeble attempt to bring peace to our lives and add to our lives. Add to our lives. This is how Christ says it in Matthew 6. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? There's another version. If you don't own this Bible, it's a fun buy. J.B. Phillips has a New Testament translation. It's a modern English translation. It's not word for word, so don't study from it. But it's fun to read. It's a thought for thought. And this is how he takes this passage. He says, which of you by being anxious can make themselves two inches taller? I like this. It's helpful. Because anxiety can't do either one of those. Those are tomorrow's impossibilities. It can't make us two inches taller or it can't make us live one hour longer. Anxiety cannot shape an impossible future. It just steals from us. But there's an allure in anxiety that it allows us to take control, right? Because if you can consume your mind with enough strategies to save you from a problem that hasn't even come yet, then maybe you have a fighting chance. If you could just focus and fixate on this flow chart of worst case scenario after worst case scenario. And if this doesn't work, you could jump to this and, and you could build it as big and as elaborate to where after maybe 30 different options, you will be safe. That's, being, that, that's, that's life not being added, that is life being stolen. But apparently, especially with the new pandemic stats that I read when we started this moment, new moms, college freshmen, Men past the age of 55 in the meat of the workforce right now, they're tapping into anxiety is their key strategy. That's a strategy now, to be anxious. And if God is long gone, then all we have is luck and grit and might, so we wear ourselves out. Or we wear each other out, right? You ever live next to an anxious person? You can ask my wife. She lives with me. It'll wear you out. I, you know, this is coming on the heels of Yodia and Syntyche going at each other and Paul having to step into that a little bit and then recruit whoever was reading the letter to assist and help them in that. I wonder, I wonder if there was a little bit of anxiety that was fueling some of that or maybe like, an, like a clear overhead being placed on top of the problem if anxiety and stress was not feeding it in some way. Because we do. We wear ourselves out and we wear each other out. But what the Lord is doing in this moment is he leading, he's leading you and he's leading me to attempt to use the best of our energies to wear him out with prayer. The beginning of peace of God for us is prayer. Here, here's where I lose you too. I know, listen, I know, this is where you tune out. Very predictably, we as Christians, we get impatient with teachings on anxiety. We get impatient with it. This is where people hear a pastor or a teacher say that they have the secret to an anxiety-proof life. And everybody leans forward in their chair to listen because everybody resonates with anxiety. And then the pastor or the teacher, they read a passage that you've heard a million times. And you just kind of, that's when you lean back and you're thinking, ah, he got me. All right, I've read that passage a million times, still anxious, so that must not work. I thought you were going to give me something that would work. 
I want you to hear me out on this, though. There's a lot in this. Might be a lot you haven't seen. Matthew 6, this is Christ, says in verse 25, and then we'll jump to 32. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here's the, here's the main idea of that, if you can't see it. The priorities of God and seeking those priorities is on a seesaw. We're seeking our own personal priorities, right? That's, that's virtually what he's saying. He's also adding in that very beautiful last sentence that borrowing tomorrow's trouble will bring anxiety today. But what is he using? What is he saying is the remedy or the antidote to anxiety? Seeking a kingdom. Seeking a person's kingdom in righteousness. And that's where we break down. We don't know what that means to seek a kingdom to seek a, a righteousness, but all we're being asked to do here, all Christ is saying is to pursue him and what he has taught. Jesus is building a kingdom. He is the centerpiece of our kingdom. He is the new king of our kingdom. So when Jesus becomes big in our eyes and his kingdom becomes big in our eyes, then stress looks awfully small. The things that we stress out over, the anxiety that runs through our blood, it starts to shrink and dissipate and move away. Because friends, just as I said earlier, you cannot have a large God and a large anxiety at the same time. Can't. Can't have a large God and a large anxiety at the same time. So if we take those words from Jesus and we import the words from Paul in our passage in Philippians today, we're going to have a really good roadmap. I broke it down to two steps, right? You might remember two. You probably won't remember three. These two are very similar and it's the first one is we tell our father what he already fully knows. Tell God what he already knows. I know that sounds odd. But Christ says this. He says, your heavenly father already knows that you need them all. He already knows. He's, you see, he's imminently close at hand. That's true. We've already looked at that. But also, he knows what you need better than you know what you need. This is fascinating to me. That not only before you say what you think you need, he already knew what you were going to pray, but he already knows what you need better than what you need. That's a very good God. So tell him. Tell him what's scaring you. Tell him authentically what's scaring you. Leave all the pretentious language at the door. Leave all the long words at the door. Don't look at your watch and see how long you've been praying. Just be honest. By the way, those are the prayers. Those are his favorite prayers. The ones that come from the gut that leave nothing unsaid. The ones without a filter. God engages us in these honest dialogues. Listen, especially, especially if those dialogues have a lot of mingled emotion mixed in with it. And have you ever, I mean, listen, this is one of my favorite passages, Romans 8, 26. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Listen, have you ever been smacked in the face with a problem? It's making you more than just anxious. And you don't even know how to see it, nonetheless how to put words to it. You don't know how to feel about it. And whether it's wrong, 
how you are already feeling about it. You don't know how to bring it up to someone else. You don't know how to wrap your mind around it. You don't even know what to say. You definitely don't know what to pray. You don't know what to do with it. It's just big and it's in your face. God is so good to us that it's not only him doing all of the work in salvation as we are recipients of his grace, he's doing it in prayer here. He's doing it in prayer because he knows what we need more than we know what we need. What I want you to know is that when you pray and you tell God what is scaring you, you're not informing him of anything. You're not adding knowledge or data to an incomplete God. He already knows. He already knows. Well, then, Luke, why are we praying? Because when you present it to the best of your ability through voice or through pen, it allows you to see. It allows you to see what has become so big. It allows you to take your will and submit it to his will. It allows you to take what is frightening you and carrying it to him and say, I know, I know and I trust that you are big and you can fix. I know that you are in control. I know that you are here. But here is this thing. It is, in fact, agreeing and trusting. Prayer is the first step of trusting your anxieties and your problems to the Lord. God knows the pit in our stomach far more than we do. We're bringing a future impossibility to God because it's impossible to us. But we trust, even if it's a small one, that it is not impossible for him. By the way, this is called supplication, that type of prayer. I know it's an odd word. We don't use it today. That's primarily because it also means ask and beg, and those words are just easier for us to use. So supplication just means to ask, and it just means to beg. When Jesus says when we beg and we ask from the place of deep anxiety, a good father is at hand, already sees, already knows, and he's very, very close. Philippians 4, Paul says this, And everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So the supplication, it's not unattended, it's joined with thanksgiving. So the first step was is we tell our father what he already fully knows, and then the next step and the second last step is we tell ourselves what we already partially know. We tell ourselves what we already partially know. Even if it's hard to believe in the moment. You ever prayed a prayer to God that you believe about 5% of it? (laughs) You're like, all right, I'm 10% there. I believe this enough to say it out of my mouth, but that's about it. I don't know that I really believe that you're going to do this, God. I don't know if I really believe that you even hear me, but I believe enough to say it. I've got a little bit of faith. I'm moving in that direction. You know, it's one thing to tell God how we feel. It's quite another to rehearse truth that we are struggling to believe. It's a very different thing. This is where we preach the gospel to ourselves. It's another phrase we use a bunch here. Last week, we looked at what it meant to apply the gospel to ourselves. This is going to be very similar to that. The main question when you preach the gospel to your own stressful heart is how does the gospel convince me that everything is going to be okay when my eyes and my ears and the world tells me that everything is not going to be okay? How does the gospel convince me that everything is going to be fine when everything is not looking like it's ever going to be fine? What does the story of a good God for mankind through the person of Jesus have to do with that? It's in this self-preaching that we are starting to create space for thanksgiving. A thankful heart is just, it's composed of two things. The understanding that God is very good and the understanding that we don't deserve it. That's what thanksgiving is. Those are the two legs it stands on. Certainly, listen, you could look at moments in your life where God has been sweet to you in the past, undeservedly. You can do that, 
and you can have evidence of God's care and you can rehearse that, that God has done good things for me in the past and so certainly he might do some good things for me today in the future or in the future and you'll find it helpful. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all the way through the Old Testament but the gospel is where an ultimate good finds ultimate undeservedness and I think it's meditating on what God has done through the cross and through the tomb that brings a sense of peace of God to us. The gospel for you and me when it comes to anxiety is God finds our hearts and our minds unguarded. This is how he finds you. If your heart and your mind were unprotected, just bare, vulnerable to the world, swirling chaos, tormented by an evil taskmaster, he finds us victims, heavily victimized. But he also finds us as victimizers as well. We weren't like cute puppies, right? We weren't noble people. We hung him on the cross. We denied his righteousness. We sought to rule ourselves. He finds us deserving of wrath and separation. That's the bad news of the good news. That's the bad, that's the bad news that comes in the gospel. Yet Jesus longs for his father to be made glorious and he longs to add you to his family. So he takes our bad news and he makes it his own. He takes our bad news and makes it his so that he could give us his peace of God. And where we once were hostile to God and undeserving of this peace, Jesus takes the, the, host the hostility upon his own shoulders. That's why the cross has blood on it. That's why the cross is such a devastating scene because that's what it looks like when the hostility of God is delivered to sin. And he took the sin of mankind and put it on his own shoulders so that the wall of hostility between you and God would be broke down and God's hostility would not find you. That's why it looks like it does. This is what Paul says to the Ephesian church. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This is what's going to build thanksgiving. The sense that God is very good and has brought us near and given us what we have not deserved. The fact that he has been very good to us. The fact that he's taken the hook of anxiety and dread and removed it from our mouth. If you want to know what the story of God looks like to an anxious world, remember that the tomb is empty. When everything looked incredibly out of control and dark and dreadful and gloomy, at its very worst, at its very worst, God was never more in control. He was at hand. He wasn't miles off. He wasn't thoughtless. He was there. John 14, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What, what do you think he means when he says, not as the world gives? We give contractually. I give you because you gave me. We reciprocate in our giving. When we give, it means we're also receiving. That's not the way he gives. He gives graciously. He gives at a debit to himself, at a credit to you. And that's how peace comes. We can't earn it. Listen, 1 Peter is a very helpful passage for us as a church today. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
You know, as I finish this out, I want you to think, if you are close to God, if you're a Christian, you love Jesus, and you know Jesus loves you, what is it that's scaring you? What is the app that is running in the background that's draining all the other apps? Where is it that you feel like God is miles away but not at hand? Where do you feel like you cannot trust him? Where, where, where is this for you? You sense it's stealing your playfulness, your joy. You know, there's room for us to repent in something like this. We're repenting. We're not just victims of anxiety. We're also perpetrators in our own lives of anxiety. We, it's, a, it's a moment where we believe that our strategies are best. To dwell on our own scenarios and strategies is more fruitful. It's the, it's the heart in us that tries to add inches and add hours to our lives. Where we try to shape tomorrow's impossibilities by thinking and dwelling as much as we possibly can on it today. You know, when anxiety finds us all, that's true. But if we choose to live in it, it's a sin. And that requires repentance. That requires turning, pivoting. And God brings a peace that defies logic. That's what's beautiful. It supersedes our understanding. God's peace means the loss of anxiety. Can you, can you today, as we sing and as we take communion together, as we leave, as we think about these words, can you beg God to fix your today? Can you beg God to fix your today from a place of trust and thanks? Can you bring whatever it is to him and say, God, could you please fix this? Can you change this or change me? Can you change this to where it doesn't threaten me anymore or can you change me to where I don't feel threatened? Can you move into this moment? Can you not just pray that prayer, but can you pray that prayer with an image of an empty tomb behind it? Can you do it from a place of thankfulness, of courage, of trust, that God is always in control and he's always at hand? And I know you might have grabbed the little rip and sip communion cups as you came in. If you did and we take communion, I want you to think about that broken body and spilt blood as a memorial of the wall of hostility between you and God being ripped down. That's what it cost for the peace of God to dwell with us and for our anxieties and our wrath to be laid out on Christ. That required that wall of hostility to be delivered on Jesus. He took what we were supposed to get and he gave us what we should have never gotten. So communion is about the peace of God. And as we take it, we can take it as a thankful people that never have to fear God's dread over our lives. And listen, if you're here and you would not say that you do love Jesus, you'd say that you're probably a little bit far. Maybe you're a skeptic. Let me just be honest with you and let you know that there still is hostility between you and God, as Paul says in Ephesians. There's still a cosmic anxiety. You still have a troubled heart, an unprotected mind. I think the worst part of your story right now is that right now is as good as it's going to get. You're not going to feel any more peace of God than you do right now if that hostility of God still dwells and hangs over your head. Martin Luther, who was a reformer a long time ago, said that his ultimate anxiety was his fear that he will never find peace with God and never be accepted by God. I know you probably walked in here with various different anxieties. You need to know it all spawns from the stump that is the fear that you will never find peace with God. 
That's what you really wake up with that rattles around in the back of your skull is that I'm never really going to be okay. It's not your job. It's not your health. It's the fact that you have no place to go. It's the, it's the fear, the wondering that at this beautiful banqueting table of God that you keep hearing about that there's no chair for you. There's no peace. There's no certainty. And that will make a person anxious. So I would just submit that you would turn and give your life. Trust him over your strategies. That you would give your life to a God with open arms who is at hand. Not just for the end events, but for you today. But let me pray for you guys, and the team will come back up. And Father, we thank you so much for being so good and so kind to us. Lord, because I know every heart in this room engages anxiety. It, it'll hit all of us before we even get to the car, probably. Before we go to bed, for sure. We will all find something to be anxious about. There's always something new to be nervous about, worried about, to feel dread, to be panicked over. Always. And Lord, I know you have made me a, the way my personality is, I'm a nervous rascal. I know that. But Lord, you've also been very good and kind and sweet to show me an empty tomb. Every time I get anxious over what will or will not happen, I think of an empty tomb. And I know that whatever happens in the world today is not going to look more out of control than a king stuffed in a grave. You showed by vacating that tomb Lord, that you were always at hand, always in control. That we can not just, we don't have to just pray, but we can pray with thanksgiving. So Lord, help us as a church as we pray, as we think through these things, that we would pray with a thankful heart. That we would have thanksgiving in our prayers and in our supplications. And Lord, that you would teach us as your kids to leave tomorrow's troubles tomorrow. Today has enough trouble of its own. Father, that we could look forward to tomorrow with hope, but not borrow the trouble of it. Father, that you would help us with anxiety. I know that it's impossible for us to never be anxious people, but Lord, that our anxieties would draw us towards you, show us you with more clarity, bind us tighter to you. Lord, that anxiety would be a tool in your hand to build a deep relationship with us. So Father, we love you and we thank you praise and we worship you for you are a very good king to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.